This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am still here with my intrepid co-pilot for this series, Timothy Wilds. Hello. (laughs) All right, so we are in the final episode for this series. We're talking about the Revoice Conference. The Revoice Conference is a conference for LGBT people committed to the traditional Christian ethic on sexuality. Now, if you are starting here, you're going to be way lost. So be sure to go back to episode one of this series and you won't be confused anymore. So go ahead and do that. Are you done? Okay, beautiful. So now that you're here... We're just going to jump right into it. We're moving on to Becca Mason. Becca Mason was the person who gave the testimony for this video. And so I'm just going to run down through her story real fast. She was once an ex-gay. So she believed that God was healing her of her homosexuality, that she was called out of homosexuality and into heterosexuality. She said that she first encountered Wesley Hill, who is a character that we are going to encounter later in this episode, years ago when she was still an ex-gay. And Wesley Hill was kind of accepting of his gay orientation or, or believed it couldn't change, at least, but still held to the traditional ethic. And, and she disagreed with this and thought that there was no such thing as a church for homosexual people because homosexual, homosexuals were called into heterosexuality. So she says that she was uh, deeply rooted in what she calls an arrogant theology and has now changed and that because she has changed, there is hope for other people rooted in that exact same theology to change as well, which I agree with. I think that is testament to some hope. So she taught in her talk, she asks, do we just grit our teeth and hope for heaven? And the theme of this talk is hope. And so how do LGBT people committed to the traditional ethic experience hope and engage in hope. So do we just grit our teeth and wait for heaven or is there hope for us now in this life? And so that's the question that she's going to set out to answer here. She says, of course, that hope is only found in Christ and that only someone who has tried drinking from a broken cistern can appreciate the experience of drinking the water of life. And uh, so she says, you know, to the audience, perhaps you've tried drinking from the same broken cisterns as she has. And so she lists off several of the broken cisterns that she encountered. One broken cistern was the faith of her parents and her parents were Baptists. And she says that she was really confident in her ability ability to do life pretty well. And she said that her parents' Christianity was flawed in very deep ways. Uh, This was also the time at which she started feeling attraction to women. She saw her friends having these different experiences of puberty. and, And she said it was frightening just how deeply different she realized she was from the other girls. And then she experienced a second cistern, a second broken cistern, and that was deals with God. And she said that this is like a minor version of the prosperity gospel. In other words, I will do whatever you want me to do if you will just fix this thing about me, if you will just change this thing about me. To that end, she tried to be a really straight Christian. She says that she dated men and and tried to be a very straight woman, but 
God didn't fix her. She says that she then placed her cistern, her hope in the cistern of academic success, and that didn't work out. And then she says, well, as a result, she just partied. And then she came to the next cistern, which was gay affirming Christianity. And she said that she would preach with her girlfriend in the pews. And, uh, you know, that the broken cistern this time was the cistern of embracing her identity and being authentic. And she said that this was ultimately an act of brokenness, basically, that it was putting hope in something other than Christ. She said that, you know, this cistern involved being exactly who she was and that she would bring, and people said that this would bring her peace. But according to her, the more she was her authentic self, the more miserable she became and she says that oft quoted thing that I that we hear so often particularly in regards to sexual stuff she says scripture says sin is fun for a season but that god will discipline us when we do wrong things okay so pause <laughs> <laughs> let me hit the pause button here i have some questions for for becca and one of those questions is, well, what do you do with me? I'm really curious how, and, and, I, don't, and I don't mean this looking for a fight. I, I genuinely am very curious. What about people like myself for whom being authentic really is life-giving? Yeah. And like, what are the options there? Like from her perspective, I'm just trying to get into her head. Like, what are the options here? Is it that I am deeply self-deceived or... Should I just give it time and it will eventually all collapse and my partner and I will eventually divorce and I will discover just how deeply unhealthy and awful and tragic this life is that I've chosen? <clears throat> do, you, do you see it going down that path? No. Okay. <laughs> just, just to be clear. I'm just curious. No, John, I mean, John and I have, it's the healthiest relationship I've ever had in my life mm -hmm. and it keeps getting healthier every day, mm -hmm. you know? And so... So she says that sin is fun for a season. This has been a pretty long season for me now, <laughs> you know, and I'm and I'm wondering when is it going to stop being fun? You know what I mean? Like, but I don't think you would even. I don't think you would reduce it to something as simplistic as fun. No, That's, but isn't this also? And I mean, some would say, "Whoa, whoa, slow down." But I, I just want to say this is an example to me of taking my experience and turning it into a standard measure for all people, which I don't want to sound, you know, overtly heretical and say that, you know, for example, the scriptures give us no measures. I'm not suggesting that, but for her to say that her path or her walk towards authenticity was a path of sin, and then to hold that up to you and me or countless others and say, don't walk that path, you know, stop walking it, don't ever walk it. I'm just not so sure. I'm not, I'm just not sure that you can do that. Yeah. Also, there's um, just quite a bit of evidence out there to suggest that being one's authentic self does in fact help people. In fact, isn't that to a degree what they are doing with this conference? Isn't that part of the goal of this conference to be their authentic self? To to at least... Megan, I, but I think Becca wouldn't want you to be that authentic. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, so I have, I, I have questions because to me there is an obvious dissonance here 
Also, I'm really curious to know what was it about her life when she was affirming that was so miserable. Mm-hmm. And and I would love to compare notes with her. I'm affirming, and my life is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. It really is. And my partnership is really amazing. Mm-hmm. And my gay friends are really amazing. And so on and so forth. I'd be really curious. And my faith is great as well. It's in a weird, different place, but I still somehow have it. And so and your I'm, world doesn't look like... A B, maybe low B minus, high C plus grade gay. Festival film. <laughs> yeah, festival <laughs> film, you know, where, where there's destruction and tragedy and chaos at every turn. No, maybe it looked like that at one point, but it definitely doesn't look like that anymore. <laughs> well, it did look like that earlier on before you settled into these habits, into these liturgies that you do now. But I'm just saying. Yeah, that's right. It would be. I agree. It would be interesting to have a little slideshow of what of what was so disturbing and traumatic about this experience for her, because I agree with you. It it appears that her story is not the norm. Yeah, I would I would agree. And so there's there are a lot of details here that I feel like I'm missing, and I feel like I really want to compare notes mm-hmm. with her life and mine and see why we have these different experiences of being affirming mm-hmm. and living the quote-unquote gay lifestyle. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so she she basically goes on to say that God placed a fork in front of her. Not not a literal fork, a, <laughs> a fork in the road. She could not serve him and continue serving herself. And so she said she finally came to the end of herself and that the Holy Spirit chose to use the law to dare her to trust him with her life. And by the law, I assume God's commandment to not have same-sex relationships. You have to trust Jesus with, uh, she says, you have to trust Jesus with this life and obey him, not just for the next life, but with her life right now. And also that this is for your own good. And she said that this is something that, that Christ made very clear to her in her relationship with him, that this is for her own good. Again, I see a huge potential for the gaslighting God here. Mm-hmm. I see the potential for for enormous harm because you're just going to keep holding out that he's good, keep holding out that he's good, and you're going to be stretched thin to nothing. I understand that that isn't everyone's experience, but it was mine and the experience of many others. So she decided to take God up on this dare and to do better with her life, for God to do better with her life, and she repented of doing things her way. And she says from that day on, the word of God came to life. And the more she saw that God could be trusted and the word of God convicted her. And she says that the more she filtered her thoughts and feelings through scripture, the more they transformed her and the more and and the more they uh, they yeah that thought died mid sentence <laughs> <laughs> i'm getting tired okay so so my thoughts on this this really just sounds like self perpetuated indoctrination to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. i know too much about our cognitive quirks and our shortcomings as thinking creatures and cults to know that this in and of itself holds any weight. The fact that some individual might on their own experience a profound enlightenment or transformation is evidence of nothing other than the profound neuroplasticity of the brain. 
right? It is evidence of nothing other than what the brain can do. So you can really get the brain to do incredible things. It's, it's extraordinary. And I use this to my advantage all the time. I consider myself kind of a non-theist and my default worldview now is one of materialism, but I still value religion and I still value the religious experience. You know how I do this? I put myself in situations with other Christians and I put my, and I do spiritual practices and lo and behold, I have supernatural experiences. I have mystical experiences mm. because I deliberately put my brain into that place. Mm -hmm. So this can be done deliberately and it can be good, but also this is just the way the human mind is and it is not proof in and of itself of anything mm -hmm. other than that the brain can do extraordinary things, right? Mm -hmm. So really all she's doing here is just rewiring her brain. And this is something that has come up again and again for me in these talks is um, there needs to be a deeper and better litmus test for truth other than personal testimony and experience. Because we might experience something as really, really awesome. We might experience something as personally profound and significant, but to, to use what can only be an inflammatory comparison, Heaven's Gate did much the same thing. Mm -hmm. Those members experienced profound transformation, were full of an extraordinary joy, and it was completely false. Mm -hmm. So we cannot just look at internal revelation as a source of truth. We have to compare it to the external world and look at broader criteria for what is true. Mm -hmm. So to me, her saying that the more she delved into the word of God, the more alive it became does not in and of itself mean much. I mean, I'm hearing all this and her words and your comments, and I'm thinking about much of what she's saying is is leading my mind to think about the language we use when we're talking about the transformative nature of Christian spirituality and the fact that we are being conformed to, that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And in doing so, this is what we think of as the process of theosis in the Christian's life. How does this relate very specifically to her same-sex attracted identity. And it sounds like she's trying to use theosis or one of the aspects of it as, again, a kind of filling in of the gap. Like, like, like I'm t I, take my, I take my admitted same-sex attracted nature and... I'm almost trying to erase it. Hmm. I'm trying to deny, hide, remove. It is substitutionary in a sense. And there's part of me that goes, well, my mind immediately goes to dualism. And this kind of, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to be above the physical incarnational aspect of who I am, that I really am flesh and blood and hormones and sexual drive and all these kind of things. And I'm just going to sort of d dwell yeah. in this more elevated, upon this more elevated plane. Yeah. And try not to go there. And part of me is going, don't you really want to live in both of those places? Or it, the, the other option is to say, 
the experience of homosexuality is not sinful within myself. But when it is physically manifested, it is sinful, which is another form of dualism. Yeah. You know, that that is also a sort of dualism. And, and the end result is an inevitable sort of breakdown or division of the self. Oh, yeah. So, so she, she uh, goes on to say that as her relationship with Jesus changed... So did her relationship with others. She said that um, she no longer saw other people to be used, but people to be cherished and loved. And she continues to admit that she's still attracted to women, but now she is oriented to Christ. And so that sentence really stood out to me. Mm -hmm. Me too. She is still attracted to women, but now she is oriented to Christ. And she says that the more she talked about her journey, the more people saw Jesus in her. When she was honest about where she was and how she's attracted to women, people were attracted to that. And when people saw her live out a daily dying to self and living a long obedience in the same direction and walking in obedience, then the more the community around her strengthened in faith because of her witness of honest living with Christ. Uh, She says that others around her became more vulnerable and started talking about their own struggles. She says the enemy loves to keep people hopeless and silent. She says the LGBT aspect of her life is the one that Christ uses the most to draw her to himself So why would God be so cruel to take that away from her? I think you have that exact quote. Could you read that? Yeah. What God uses most consistently to draw me to himself, to point out my weakness and my need for him. So why in the world would he be so cruel as to take away that which deeply presses me into himself? Mm. To which I wrote, I could say the exact same thing. And I came to a completely different conclusion. Yeah. So here's where it's not as simple, folks, as this sounds. Because, you know, if you, if you know my story, you know that it was not a running from God, running from faith, running from the church that actually brought me to the place of confidence that I've taken the steps I've taken. It's actually all those things brought me there. Yes. And and so those things brought me to my own embrace of my authentic self, mm-hmm. which means that I stand as a contradiction to her story. Yeah. She, she basically goes on to say that in her honest, you know, when we are honest about our struggles and when we're all honest about these struggles that we have, we realize that we are not alone. And when this happens, we start to go towards community. And then she says this, he did not say it is not good for man to be celibate. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. And she said this kind of mm-hmm. very firmly to which I, uh, I want to say, yeah, that's true. That is what the scriptures say. I'm at a point in my life where I'm less concerned with what scriptures say and more concerned with what the holy scripture of reality says. Because <laughs> I think reality is itself the ultimate holy scripture. To quote Philip K. Dick, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, continues to be true. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So what does that say? And I think what that scripture says is um, it is not good. For many people to be celibate. Not all people, but many people, right? Mm -hmm. 
And she says sex and marriage are good. She says they serve temporal purposes to be fruitful and multiply and to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and church, but they are not ultimate. He said that in the next life, we will not be given in marriage. Christ said that his mothers and brothers are those who do the will of the Father. So as a result of this, our hope is not in heterosexuality, but in Christ. Again, I just, I, I see what she's saying. I get what she's saying. I think it's only really a half truth. This downplaying of marriage, I understand. I get it because it might make loneliness and it might make a life of celibacy more bearable. I'm at the point, again, where I care less about what Christ said about marriage in the afterlife. I'm at a point in my life where I don't know if there's an afterlife. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that there's this life and that marriage has a ripple effect through the fabric of social reality mm -hmm. and that it that ripple effect has enormous consequences and that is true of every single relationship on this planet all relationships are valuable all relationships are meaningful that includes friendships and marriage and so i'm just not concerned with what jesus said about marriage in the afterlife i don't care about that anymore because i think it's missing the point mm -hmm. i think the point is that all relationships are complicated and all relationships are important and to devalue one in favor of the other which is I don't know if that's what she's doing here. I expect people would protest what I'm saying, but that's the sense I get. But in all fairness, you just took the words out of my mouth because this is this is what I'm picking up from her and other speakers at this conference is if you can, you know, as we are as we are called to do, you know, to set our minds upon things above. If we if we can talk about things that are more spiritual, and Christ-centered, and more more spiritually noble. And in doing so, we can sort of give the impression that these earthly things, these physical things, these temporal things, yes, they're passing away. But is is that act of, as you just used the word, devaluing, is, is there a level of dishonesty in that? Because that's not where we live. We all know that we live in a world that's a combination of two things, both mm -hmm. the physical and the spiritual. And both of us, both of us are well familiar with this kind of language yes. that, that wants to talk about elevating to higher, grander notions. And, and I mean, I, I am not, I am not belittling that. But at the same time, I also want to ask the question to all of these speakers that nave full of people who came to St. Louis to that conference are sitting there in human bodies mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> with sexual organs and with sexual impulses and intellectual and emotional impulses. And we're just, we've just got to speak to the whole person. Yeah. And, and that's, I, that's what I'm missing a bit here. Yeah, me too. I feel like I feel like they're trying to, and I think that even maybe they think they are, but if I were in that room, they would not be speaking to my whole person. I would feel a lot of the pieces of my being left out. So she she concludes her talk here by saying that her hope is not in heterosexuality. Our hope is not in heterosexuality, but in Christ, and that she is not hopeless. Even though she's attracted to women, her hope is in Christ. And then she 
ends with that oft-repeated analogy by C.S. Lewis, which has come to grate on me enormously. <laughs> we have forsaken C.S. Lewis's mud puddle. You know, we, we've C.S. Lewis says we have forsaken that mud puddle and have chosen the holiday at the shore and that those of us living in our sin are like children playing in a mud puddle refusing to go to the holiday go to a holiday at the seashore that really frustrates me because what if that's just not the case mm -hmm. right i mean and inevitably we have to ask that question what if the seashore is a fucking myth because what Whenever I hear people say that, and I used to repeat that too, and I, like that metaphor is, is so ingrained in this narrative of, you know, living a life of, life of quote unquote sexual sin, it really isn't nearly as good and wonderful and beautiful as, you know, the life of faith and trust and quote unquote chastity within the church, to which I just want to say, show me the fucking evidence. Show me the evidence that I would somehow be more joyful or somehow more fulfilled or more happy. Because frankly, the evidence that every single speaker from this conference has given so far is quite the contrary. And if the answer is simply that it is some kind of intangible, invisible, anecdotal evidence, that it's some internal phenomenology that is totally subjective, or maybe that that seashore is in heaven after you die, I'm sorry, that's not evidence, that's not good enough. If, if we expect people to believe what we believe, if you expect to be able to evangelize to the gay community, because I hear a lot of talk about that here as well, mm -hmm. a lot of talk about evangelizing or reaching out to the LGBTQ community, you're going to have to offer us something tangibly better than what we already have. Mm -hmm. And you're giving zero evidence that the seashore exists at all mm -hmm. other than inside your head. Yeah. Anyway, those... Are my thoughts I mean, on they that? They might say, "Well, that's you know, this was a talk about hope, so there it is. So you hope for the seashore, but then there's, you know, this 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 devaluing of the physical experience, which I mean, let's we've I mean we've talked about this, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your on your podcast many times, but you know, in the Christian tradition, there has been seasons during that long tradition where the church teaching was more and less comfortable with the physical body. And I think we're still, we're still living in an age where, especially in the American culture, where this is the most promiscuous and repressed sexual culture probably in the history of this land. Yeah. It's like it is constantly, you know, barrage. It is a barrage of sexual information, and yet it carries such shame and you know all sorts of you know images that are taboo i mean it's just it's mm -hmm. we we have we have created such a incongruous sort of situation in knowing how as human beings to live with that reality in our life and the bottom line is let me just be blunt the very god who made you and put all these impulses inside of you and all these pleasurable places in your body doesn't seem to be as nervous about it as you are. Yeah. I mean, think about think about the ecstatic experience that often accompanies intimacy and sexual expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, if our God had been as 
nervous and as uncomfortable with it as we sometimes appear to be, you know, could we have, could we put in a request that he just across the entire human race, turn the volume down for all of us? But I mean, it's loud. It's really loud in our bodies. Yeah. It's not soft. Yeah. You can really hear it. Yes. And and there's this <laughs> and there's this thing about this notion that you know, we can just mute. We can just press pause on something that is so integral to our very identity. You know, all all of this language in her talk about, you know, I am, let me find it here. I am attracted to women but oriented to Christ, you know, I am sexually oriented to women. Does that mean you could not be sexual? Does that, does that mean that you could not then be spiritually oriented to Christ? I mean, are they not compatible? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and, and there's, and, and obviously there's this, there's this hierarchy of language going on here where attracted is a lesser word to the word oriented. Mm-hmm. Oriented sounds more noble, attracted, tawdry. Yeah. I don't know. It's just in this conversation and recapping her, this this whole dualistic mentality of trying to put one above the other and never and never really joining these two realities together. And I would love to know more about what is Revoice's agenda for showing people how to tie these two realities together. Because from what I'm hearing, it appears to be, you know, if if into the left ear is the, is the voice of your sexuality and into the right ear is the voice of God, you need to put a plug in your left ear. Yeah, you that's need, right. You need to not really listen to your left ear. Yeah. And the fact is, we have two ears. <laughs> <laughs> and for most of us, both of them, and for most people, both of them work. Yeah. Now, what are we going to do about that? On Facebook, I, I've been having, and on Twitter, I've been having lots of really fascinating conversations with people. Because, you know, before I do a show, I normally put out feelers to my audience to get an idea of, like, what are people saying about this? What are people's thoughts on the topic for the show? And um, so I've had lots of interesting conversations. One conversation that I had, one guy commented on his own wall, and he's traditional. He's gay and affirms the traditional ethic. And he said, you know, if the far right can't accept someone like me, who, in other words, him, if someone, if the far right can't accept someone like me, who is gay, but affirms the church's teaching, then how on earth do you expect to evangelize to a married couple, legally married couple with adopted children? And I was very curious because then, so I commented and I asked him, so how would you advise someone to evangelize someone like me? (laughs) Because I, I wanted to just kind of bring a gentle awareness that the people he's talking about are actually in the room listening. <laughs> and, you know, you're talking about evangelizing someone like me, where many people would consider me outside of the Christian tradition for various reasons. People would say, I'm not a Christian. I'm okay with that. That's fine. I, For a lot of people, I represent the person far outside the scope of living with Christ, right? And so I'm, j- I'm just curious, how would you evangelize someone like me? I really want 
want to know? I, I haven't gotten an answer yet. Okay. But, no. that's, but that's my question, yeah. is how does this connect to real lives? Mm-hmm. How does this connect to real people? Mm-hmm. And so she ended with that uh, C.S. Lewis metaphor, and uh, that, that was the end of her talk. I, I did not enjoy this talk as much as I enjoyed the, the, some of the previous ones. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I, I found it very unpleasantly self-assured, and that might just be me being a bitch. <laughs> that, just, that might just be me misinterpreting her. I did not appreciate this one as much as I did the others, mm-hmm. and that, that's just me. No, I hear you. There's also a, a thread. I, I know I've said that word many t- too many times through this, but I think it, it works. A thread that runs through many of these, and it is a desire to be right. The importance of being right about mm. this topic. And, you know, I guess we all want to believe that we're doing the right thing in regards to how do we understand a Christian sexual ethic as, you know, detailed to us in the Bible. Yeah. And obviously we have to distinctly, well, not two, I'm sure there's many, many varieties on it, but there are two dominantly distinctive views on this. And I have to ask the question, who do you believe? Mm. Who do you believe? Mm -hmm. Uh, I've said this to you before that listening to these conversations, these uh, addresses these testimonies, you know, given the political climate in which we live in this country today and the war that goes on between the current administration in Washington and the news media, we're constantly asked the question, who do you believe? You know, it's almost like watching CNN and Fox News cover this content. <laughs> and yeah. how differently how differently it would be reported because there have been long stretches of these addresses where I've gone that's right mm-hmm. and then yeah me too as soon as they finished the sentence and I went to my conclusion they went to theirs and we were like oops well we didn't reach the same place <laughs> yeah it, it's amazing how such similar things such similar stories like diverge into these totally opposite places. And I can understand how deeply confusing that is for people trying to sort it out. I I feel like that's the way it was for me. Oh, for me too. I mean, when I was in college, there were times when it felt like literally every second of the day, from the moment I woke up to the moment I fell asleep at night, this was the only thing I thought about. It oh, just sure. it just consumed me. And part of it was, well, who do I believe? All of these people are very convincing and very confident. You know? But you know, the reason the reason it was so in your face, and it wasn't it was in my face. It's I mean, talk to anyone who's been down, down this road. You know why it's in your face because the traditional stance on sexual morality as defined by a consciously literal rendering of what the scriptures say leave us in a precarious place in our mm. in our relationship with other people and even you know depending on how strict or stringent that reading is of the scriptures it even asks questions about you know how much does god really love you and how welcome are you really in the church 
Mm. And how, you know, how trustworthy are you to serve in the church and to be around children? I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Ray Lowe's testimony alone is evidence that we live in a world where there is still unmeasured phobia within the church about all this. Absolutely. Because there's so much ignorance. So all I'm saying is the need to be right is something we all need to ask ourselves. We all need to ask ourselves just how important that is in in all the in all the contexts in which we find ourselves. Cuz there's there is no doubt there is a certainty that their interpretation of this ethic is the only interpretation there is. Mhm. Yeah. There's there's no question about that. And you know I I actually came to this realization recently with an, with another person who I had some of a something of a conflict with and that's a whole other story. I wrote about it on my blog. You can go read it there. The blog post is called uh, you better be right, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is something that this friend said to me. And um I have situated myself, I have decided that my goal is less to be right and more to have a correct posture. Mm. I want to be right, and I think I'm right. I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not going to say I don't think I'm right. But I have to value posture over being right in the moment, in the present, Mm -hmm. because the chances of me being wrong are far greater than the chances of me being right. And my track record in life is that I am wrong more than I am right. And so, which is why I'm less, I'm less concerned or I'm less obsessed with whether or not I'm right than whether or not my method is right. Absolutely. You know, am I humble? Am I willing to question everything? Am I willing to come to a different opinion once evidence is presented to me? And, you know, I know enough about the human mind to know just how hard that is, that we are not wired to understand truth. We're wired to gain the favor of our tribe. And so it's really hard for us to sell, to sacrifice ourselves in the pursuit of truth. I mean, to sacrifice those biases. Mm-hmm that are innate within us. And and so it's very hard, but that's what I've decided is to try to have correct posture over correct belief. What what also comes through in hers and and others' language is a real devotion to defending, Mm, a defense of this posture of what is, you know, what is the biblical ethic on sexuality. you know, one of my favorite writers that you introduced me to is Peter Enns, who talks a great deal about mm. the the danger of viewing the scriptures as something to be, you know, largely defended. I think defense doesn't really lead people towards a dialogue. That's very true. Because, you know, defense is about somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Can I share just one short thing from... Absolutely. From Colby Martin in his book, Unclobber. Unclobber. He makes a great point to me, uh, or to anyone who reads the book, not just me, uh, about the fact that when you look at these passages that have been traditionally used to make a case for or against mostly against homosexuality, that contemporary biblical scholarship leaves us with more questions than answers. Yes. But he says this, and I totally agree with him. Although the Bible in places can be rather vague, there's, there's not much vagueness about what God considers to be 
a noble biblical ethic. Mm. And here's what he says. And he says, this list should be applied to homosexuals, heterosexuals, and anyone between. And this is from the uh, book? The book Unclobber. By? Colby Martin. Okay. And he basically says this. Don't be flippant with your body. Don't treat it like it has no value. Don't break your covenants. Don't cheat on people. Don't sell yourself. Don't devalue others by treating them like a commodity. Don't use your power or influence to take advantage of others. Yeah. Period. Okay. How about America, North America, world? How about trying that for a year? See what happens. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Yeah. That's that's common sense from the Bible about Absolutely. how to use the body you've been given, which he's not unhappy about at all, put all these impulses in us. He must have wanted them to be there. Take that list. Organize your romantic, physical, sexual activity according to that list. Try it for 365 days. You might notice a difference in your life. We might notice a difference in the whole country. Absolutely. But but we'd yeah. rather, I think what we'd rather be, honestly, is right. Mm-hmm. We'd rather be right. Yeah. And so... Th- and by the way, he would never be invited to speak <laughs> at, the Revoice, at the Revoice Conference because he, he was well within that camp and of his own volition did amazing work to find himself now in the affirming camp. So hmm. no, you won't see his name there, but the book is well worth a read. That's awesome. Well, I think we're going to have to turn this into a four-parter. Ooh. <laughs> is that okay? Can sure. You, can you do another one? Of course. Okay. This is this is turning into a day here at the uh, Wilds Bachelor Pad. <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds far too grand. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have a great apartment. It I, is a great apartment. I think it's awesome. I love the the granny pictures of little thank you of little cats on courtesy the, of Goodwill thank on you the very wall much. with bows and uh-huh. it's, it's very very cute it's very really umbridge like it is very umbridge. <laughs> All right, well that's our show for this week. As usual, anyone who disagrees with me on this issue, please I welcome you to reach out to me, uh, get to know me, let's talk. I would love to hear your perspective on this, and of course everyone else, you are welcome to reach out to me as well. Anyone involved in Revoice, any of the speakers, organizers, you are all welcome to come onto the show. I would love to talk to all of you. I want to have a conversation. Even though I might get mad sometimes, I still respect you. I hope that comes through. I really, really hope it does. Uh, Just because I have grave concerns, just because you say a few things that really anger me is not enough to get rid of me as a friend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, so find me on sbradfordlong.com where you can send me a message and you can read my dozens of articles about faith and doubt and sexuality and mental health and whatever strikes my fancy. If you want to support my Patreon, if you have some cash, if you want to, you know, forgo a cup of coffee a month and, and send me some money to keep doing this show, it would be so helpful if you could do that for me. Every little bit helps and you will get a second podcast exclusive for patrons. 
called the House of Heretics podcast, uh, unedited conversations, where me and Justin drink a lot and ramble about faith. So you have that to look forward to if you donate to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. This is a production of Rock Candy Media. The show is written and edited by me, Stephen Long, and I need to thank my team, Carson Green, Justin Dozier Bryant, for keeping me sane through this whole process. And the music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. We will see you next week.